0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon, and this is episode 6, The Fool and the Saint. Thanks for listening. In the last episode, we met various peoples, the Khazars, the Magyars, Bulgars, and Peshniks, who lived in the vicinity of the Rus', And we looked at the strange and supposedly 33-year-long reign of Oleg between 879 and 912. And I say strange because, apart from his grab of Kiev in 882 from Asgold and Deer, and his raid on Constantinople in 911, at the beginning and end of his time in charge respectively, nothing else of note happened. Or, if it did the chronicles are silent. This week we're going to look at the life and times of the next two people who get to rule the roost in the Rus territories. And woven into, or in some cases tacked on to the story, will be the growing importance of Kiev, the first glimpses of Christianity amongst the Rus, a new alphabet appearing in the lands just to the west, the obligatory raid or two on Constantinople, and a couple of secret weapons. Plus we'll meet another neighbouring group of people, the Drevlians. And whenever I say Drevlians, or see it written down, I immediately think of a race of Star Trek aliens. Maybe it's just me. Anyway, my approach will be as per last week, I'll continue to use Nesta of Kiev's Primary Chronicle as my main source uncover any differences and contradictions from the other sources as we stumble along in the semi-darkness. And just before I start, the podcast website is historyofrussia.podbean.com, and this is where I post any visual aids such as maps, stats and timelines for any of the episodes that need them. And if you want to get in touch, then either leave me a comment via your podcasting platform of choice, or if you've got a question, you can drop me a mail at outlook.com. And talking of getting in touch, I've been toying with the idea of setting up something on social media, which I've not really had a lot of experience with, and actually I'm quite happy not to use it. But I thought something along those lines would make the podcast more visible and also make it easier for people to leave comments. And so earlier today, I set up a Twitter account. Uh, you can find me at History Russia One. So that's the at sign and then History with a capital H, Russia with a capital R, and the number one. At History Russia One. I'm not sure what's going to happen next. I've linked my Twitter account to my Podbean account, uh, and as I say, it should now be easier to comment on the podcast. But I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. Okay, Pythium. The next man in charge of the Rus is Igor, or in Norse Ingevar, who was known, probably after his death, as Igor the Old, which seems a bit of a cop-out and suggests a lack of imagination by whoever came up with it, but let's see if it fits the bill. So according to the primary chronicle, he's the son of Rurik and he rules between the years 912 and 945. The sources aren't clear on who his mother is, although one of them suggests a certain Ifanda, who either was or wasn't a Norman princess. And there are at least five different dates suggested for Igor's birth. First of all we have 877 or 878, which would make him one or two when his father died, and four or five when Oleg takes him on his trip to Kiev in 882. And 67 or 68 when he dies. So those dates are plausible. They kind of fit. So far, so good. And then we have three others. 861, 865, far too early. And 888, far too late. And all of which put, if they're true, put everything I've been saying over the past few weeks massively in doubt. And I can imagine Nestor had the same problem. I reckon back in the day, he was sitting there, three pieces of aging parchment that referred to these awkward dates, on his desk, trying desperately to fit them into his narrative, until he gets totally exasperated and just chucks them in the bin, and breathes a huge sigh of relief. Which I'll also do, but only for the time being. Anyway, it's now the year 913, and let's assume that Igor is at the helm. So what's the first thing he decides to do? Well, we're told that the Rus', possibly led by Igor, set off south on a raid, but this time they don't go down the Dnieper to Constantinople, but they try their luck further east, down the Volga and across the Caspian Sea, and they're going to have a go at the Arabs who were settled in present-day Iran. And no doubt they kept a wary eye on the Khazars whose territory they were in as they sailed, rode or trudged their way southwards. And having arrived, off the coast of Iran on 500 ships, they pillaged in the Gorgan region, and then further to the west in Gilan and Mazandaran, taking slaves and goods. However, on their return, the Rus were attacked and defeated by guess who? Yep, the Khazars in the Volga Delta. So I guess the lookouts didn't do their job, and those Rus who escaped were killed off by the local Slavic tribes along the middle Volga. But what happened to Igor? Well, we don't know. It's unlikely that he was even there, to be honest. And in fact, the first time we can really attest to his presence anywhere is in a raid or an invasion on Constantinople in 941, followed by another in 944. And in the same year, that's 944, uh, in another foray against the Arabs in Iran. Although, again, we're not sure that in this latter Caspian Sea expedition, Igor was involved. So let's stick with what we do know. It's May 941, and the Rus and their allies, the Pechenegs and the Drevlians, who were a Slavic tribe that lived to the east of the Rus lands, disembarked on the northern coast of Asia Minor and swarmed over the province of Bithynia. As per the raid in 860, they seem to have been well informed that the imperial capital again stood defenceless and vulnerable to attack as the Byzantine fleet was busy in the Mediterranean, fighting the Arabs, and the bulk of the Imperial army was stationed out towards the eastern borders. Very quickly, the Byzantines, however, did manage to arrange a defence of Constantinople. They had 15 mothballed ships fitted out with something called Greek fire. Now, this secret weapon has taken on a near mythical status. And in fact, was a closely guarded Byzantine state secret. It was used to set light to enemy ships and, indeed, the water around them. And it consisted of a combustible compound emitted by an early type of siphon or tube, which some historians believe—well, they believe it about the combustible compound—that it could be ignited on contact with water. And it was probably based on naphtha and quicklime. Anyway, whatever it was. I think it's best if we just kind of imagine a kind of antiquated flamethrower. So Igor, wishing to capture these Greek vessels and their crews, but unaware of the flamethrowers, had his fleets around them. Then, in an instant, the Greek fire was hurled through the tubes upon the Rus and their allies, and an observer noted that the Rus, seeing the flames, jumped overboard, preferring water to fire. Some sank, weighed down by the weight of their breastplates and helmets. Others caught fire, and any captured Rus were taken back to Constantinople and beheaded. So the Byzantines managed to dispel the Rus fleet, but could not prevent the attackers from pillaging the hinterland of Constantinople and venturing as far south as Nicomedia, where many atrocities were reported, and the Rus were said to have crucified their victims and to have driven nails into their heads. And then in September, John Korkouas and Bardas Phocas, who were two leading Byzantine generals, speedily returned to the capital from the east, anxious to repel the invaders. And so the Kievans and their allies promptly decided to transfer their operations to Thrace, further west. However, when they were about to retreat, ships laden with their ill-gotten gains, the Byzantine navy under its commander, Theophanes, fell upon them. And the Greek sources report that the Rus' lost their whole fleet in this surprise attack, so that only a handful of boats returned to their bases in the Crimea. And again, any captured prisoners were taken to the capital and beheaded. Khazar sources add that some of the Rus' chiefs managed to escape to the Caspian Sea, where they met their deaths again fighting the Arabs. Igor, though, remained unscathed, and he scuttled back to Kiev with his tail between his legs, and after brooding over his defeat for a couple of years, decided to mount a new naval campaign against Constantinople in late 944 and early 945. And this time, under threat from an even larger force than before, the Byzantines opted for diplomatic action to circumvent the invasion and they offered tribute and some minor trade privileges to the Kievans. This Byzantine offer was discussed between Igor and his generals before finally being accepted, and then the Rus-Byzantine Treaty of 945 was ratified, re-establishing cordial, if not chilly, relations between the two sides. Now, the primary chronicle seems to think that the treaty was generally favourable to the Rus, but the other sources are not convinced, stating that whilst the Kievans had been bought off, the costs of provisioning both raids far outweighed the financial benefits, and that realistically things remained as they were, with Constantinople and not Kiev in effective control of trade between the two states. So having twice raided Byzantium, notice I didn't say Constantinople again, and perhaps twice raided the Arabs in Iran, and with little to show for it, and a degree of reputational damage, what does Igor do? Settle back, take his time, have a think about things? No. He decides to knock on the door of his sometime allies, the Drevlians, and ask for an increased amount of tribute. Well, why not? This raiding can be an expensive undertaking, and a bit of extra cash is always welcome. But this was a step too far for the Drevlians, and this time Igor's luck is going to run out. We're told that the Byzantine historian and chronicler, Leo the Deacon, that Igor met his death in, well, what I think is a fairly hideous way, as the Drevlians captured him, held him down, and then what they did was they bent down two adjoining birch trees, to the Prince's feet, and tied the tips of him to his legs, and then they just let the trees straighten again, and of course this had the effect of just tearing Prince Igor's body apart. And like I said, it's just totally gruesome, but it's not all that bad, because it was almost probably invented, but never let the truth get in the way of a good story. But anyway, it's now 945, and just like that, Igor is no more, literally. The Primary Chronicle blames his death on his own excessive greed, indicating that he tried to collect tribute for a second time in a month. But what the Primary Chronicle, or indeed any other chronicle, doesn't tell us, is why, if his rule started in 913, is there no mention of him until 941, an almost 30-year gap which, if you remember, is almost exactly the same as for Oleg's time in charge. And in fact, some experts reckon that Igor's rule doesn't actually start until 941, and that Igor and Oleg were joint kings at some point between 879 and 940 in the style of the Khazars, who would have a formal political ruler and a military chief acting together. So we've got potentially over 50 years that are more or less unaccounted for. Maybe Nestor threw more than three pieces of parchment in the bin, who knows? We only really have the Primary Chronicles word for everything that happened, but there are more holes in that for this period than in a great big piece of Swiss cheese. So what do we think about Igor the Old, or more importantly, what do I think? Well, based upon his record, I reckon that Igor the Fool is a better soubriquet, although even that perhaps doesn't quite fit the bill, but then neither does Igor the Reckless or Igor the Idiot, which were my original thoughts. So I've stuck with Fool, even though perhaps it's a little bit unkind, but it does make for a great podcast title, or part of a great podcast title. Either way, after his incredibly long reign, or his rather short one, he's gone. And with only an infant son to succeed him, yes, he found time to marry and father a child. Now it's up to his young wife Olga, acting as regent, to take the rudder and steer the roost forward. Well, you can't steer forward, but you know what I mean. So let's take a look at Olga, or Helga as she was known in Old Norse, before finally being baptised later in life as either Helena or Elena or just Helen. Again, her birth date is unknown, it could be as early as 890 or as late as 925 AD. But the good old primary chronicle at least states that she was of Varangian origin, and that she was born in a place called Pleskov, which is modern day Pskov. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Little is known about her life before her marriage to Igor in 940, and the birth of their son, Sviatoslav, in 943. But according to Alexey Karpov, a specialist in the history of ancient Russia, Olga was no more than 15 years old at the time of her marriage, which therefore points to around the 925 birth date as being probable. And very little is known about Olga's tenure as ruler of Kiev, but the primary chronicle does tell her, does tell us of her accession in 945, and provides some insight into her role as leader of the Kievan people. And note here that the terms Kiev and Kievan are becoming more prominent, as whilst not yet the official capital, the Rus' base on the Dnieper has become increasingly preeminent. So what's going to be Olga's first move? Now she's been thrust into the limelight. A raid, perhaps, or a look at the fine print contained in the recent treaty with Byzantium? Or perhaps just a period of quiet consolidation? I mean, it can't have been easy acting as a regent for your young son in the male-dominated world of former Vikings. Well, she does none of the above. In fact, she doesn't have to make a first move, because the Drevlians make it for her. And the Primary Chronicle now goes into this in full-on artistic license mode. So bear this in mind, okay? Apparently emboldened by their success in ambushing and killing Igor, the Drevlians send messengers to Kiev, who propose to Olga that she marries the murderer of her husband, a certain Prince Mal or Maul. To which Olga replies diplomatically, Your proposal is pleasing to me. Indeed, my husband cannot rise again from the dead. But I desire to honour you in the presence of my people. Return now to your boat and remain there, and I shall send for you tomorrow. And to cut a long story short, the next day, and in front of her people, or the people of Kiev, the Drevlians restated their kind offer of marriage, and of course, the people of Kiev rose up, because they'd been told to, and they bundled the unfortunate ambassadors into a large pit, and buried them alive. Olga then sent a message to the Drevlians back in their homelands that they should send their distinguished men to her in Kiev so that she might go to their prince with due honour. And so the Drevlians, unaware of the fate of the first diplomatic party, gathered another party of men to send. When they arrived, Olga commanded her people to draw them baths and invited the men to appear before her after they had bathed. But of course, when the Drevlians entered the bathhouse, the exits were blocked, and the building was set on fire, and all inside were burned to death. She's a nice one, this Olga, isn't she? Anyway, then she sends another message to the Drevlians, this time ordering them to prepare great quantities of mead in the city where you killed my husband, that I may weep over his grave and hold a funeral feast for him. And so when Olga and a small group of attendants arrived at Igor's tomb, she did indeed weep and hold a funeral feast. And of course the Drevlians sat down to join them and began to drink heavily, and when the Drevlians were all drunk, she ordered her followers to kill them all. And apparently 5,000 were killed on this night. But Olga was still not satisfied, and she returned to Kiev to prepare an army to finish off the Drevlians once and for all. And this incursion or invasion started well for the Kievans, who won an initial battle and then laid siege to the city of Iskorosten, which is today's Korosten, in northern Ukraine. But this went less well, and we're told that the siege went on for a year, with little sign of the defenders being anywhere close to surrendering. But Olga thought of a plan to trick the Drevlians, and she sent them a message. Why do you persist in holding out? All of your other towns have surrendered to me and submitted to tribute, so that now their inhabitants cultivate their fields and tend their lands in peace. The Drevlians responded that they would submit to tribute, but that they were afraid that she was still intent on avenging her husband. Olga answered that the murder of the messenger sent to Kiev, as well as the events of the feast night, had been enough for her, and she then asked them for a small request. Give me three pigeons and three sparrows for each house. The drevlings rejoiced at the prospect of the siege ending, for such a small price, and hurriedly rounded up the birds, which, when you think about it, can't have been easy. Olga then instructed her army to attach a piece of sulphur, bound with small pieces of cloth, to each bird, and at nightfall she told her soldiers to set the pieces of sulphur aflame and to release the birds. Then returned to their nests within the city, setting it ablaze. And as the people fled the flames, Olga ordered her soldiers to catch them, killing some of them and giving the others as slaves to her followers. Well, it's not quite Greek fire, but I suppose burning sulphur tied to a bird's leg is a secret weapon of sorts. And I'm not going to go into all of the practical impossibilities of what we've just been told. Let's just sigh and take it for what it was, and move on. But I am willing to believe that the poor old Drevlians were taken to task and finally subjugated. However, and my only other observation is, you wouldn't want to have got on the wrong side of Olga. Anyway, we're told that she remained regent of of Kievan Rus, with the support of the army and her people, and she carried out a set of wide-ranging reforms, including the setting setting up of boundary posts, towns, trading posts, and a new system of tribute collection across the Kievan and Drevlian lands. And seriously, this work helped to centralise state rule, particularly in the towns and trading posts, or pagosti, as they were called, which served as as administrative hubs in in addition to their role as trading and mercantile centres. However, there's one aspect of her time in charge that proved to be her most lasting legacy. In the year 957, Olga travelled to Constantinople to visit the Emperor Constantine VII, no doubt to chat about trade and look at further mutually beneficial opportunities. However, once there, Olga converted to Christianity, with the assistance of the Emperor and the Patriarch. And whilst the Primary Chronicle doesn't divulge Olga's motivation, it does go into lengthy and agonising detail on the conversion process, but don't worry, I'll spare you the pain. Now, according to Russian sources, she was baptised in Constantinople in 957. However, Byzantine sources indicate that she was a Christian prior to her 957 visit, and it seems likely that she was baptised in Kiev. In around 955, and following a second christening in Constantinople, took the Christian name Helen or Helena. But something didn't quite go to plan on this Byzantine trip, or the outcome wasn't as Olga or Constantine had planned, because on her return to Kiev, Olga did two things. Number one, she tried to convert her son Sviatoslav to Christianity, urging him to become baptised but he was having none of it. According to the Primary Chronicle, Sviatoslav declares that his followers would laugh if he were to accept Christianity. But Olga tried again. She tried to convince her son by saying that his followers would follow his, follow his example if he converted, but her efforts were in vain. But, as a compromise, Sviatoslav agreed not to persecute those in his kingdom who did convert which starts to give Christianity a small but increasingly popular following in Kiev. And then number two, and in 959, so two years later, and according to Latin sources, Olga sends an embassy to the Holy Roman Emperor Otto I, and her envoys request that he appoint a bishop and priests for their nation. And so, a further two years down the road, in 961, a Bishop Adalbert of Magdeburg, was sent to Kiev to fulfil the early request. But before he could do anything, he was expelled from the city by Sviatoslav. So what was going on here, and what importance can we attach to these events? Well, we can only guess at the real reason for Olga's trip to Constantinople, but it has been suggested that it was to get Byzantine help and guidance, for the wholesale conversion of Kiev to Christianity. And when no help was forthcoming, or Constantinople was seen to be dragging its heels, she turned to the West for a religious patron. Russian historian and writer Boris Akunin suggests that the failure of Olga's Byzantine trip inflicted a severe blow to her party, and that by the time Adalbert arrived in Kiev, she and her entourage had fallen out of favour. And according to Russian historian Vladimir Petrukin, Olga invited the Western bishops because she wanted to motivate Byzantine priests to convert and baptise the Rus people more enthusiastically by introducing a bit of competition. And I just don't get what was behind Olga's sudden religious zeal. Was it a true calling? Or was it guilt about the number of Drevlians she had butchered? Or was it simply an attempt to find an ally uh, or allies that would prop up her own party in Kiev. I think it was probably the latter. But whatever the reasons, Olga's time in charge has ended. Sviatoslav's reign officially starts in 963. Olga dies in 969. And whilst we'll cover the events around this in more detail in the next episode, I do want to squeeze in a couple of other items now. And the first is Olga, or Helena's legacy that I mentioned a few minutes ago. Because at the time of her death, it seemed that her attempt to make Kievan Rus a Christian territory had been a failure. Nonetheless, her Christianising mission would be brought to fruition by her grandson, who officially adopted Christianity in 988. And the primary chronicle highlights Olga's holiness in contrast to the pagans around her during her life, as well as the significance of her decision to convert to Christianity. Well, it would, wouldn't it? And in 1547, nearly 600 years after her death, the Russian Orthodox Church named Olga a saint. And because of her proselytising influence, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Ruthenian Greek Catholic Church, and the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, all call Olga by the honorific, Is Apostolos, which means equal to the Apostles. And she's also a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. Her feast day is July the 11th, the date of her death. And in keeping with her own life, she is the patron of widows and converts. And then secondly, the alphabet. Now for this, I need to introduce a couple of monks named Saint Cyril, and St Methodius, who were brothers born in Thessaloniki in modern-day northern Greece, and who in the early 9th century were the Byzantine Empire's go-to guys for spreading Eastern Orthodox Christianity, first amongst the Khazars, interestingly enough, in the 860s, and then amongst the Moravian Slavs and the Danubian Bulgars. Well, they try and spread Christianity amongst the Khazars, but as we know from, was it last week or the week before, that the Khazars aren't too keen on Christianity, and if they were going to go for any religion, they went for Judaism. Anyway, and to make everyone's life easier, Cyril and Methodius came up with a whole new alphabet called the Glagolitic alphabet, which they used to translate the Bible and other Greek religious texts into a language known today as Old Church Slavonic. And then an offshoot of this original alphabet, which is named Cyrillic, after St Cyril, then starts to be used in Danubian Bulgaria in the late 800s. And at some point in the 10th century, it's being widely utilised in the Kievan Rus territories. And in fact, that same alphabet uh, is used today in a number of slightly different forms to depict various modern languages. The main ones being Russian, Ukrainian, Bulgarian, Belarusian and Serbian. And we'll cover the Cyrillic alphabet in further detail in later episodes as the story unfolds. Okay, gonna leave it there for this episode. Next time it's Fyatoslav's spot in the limelight, and he likes a fight, so he'll be pretty busy doing that. Until then, stay safe, keep your head down and your chin up. In fact, try practicing both at the same time, and I'll see you all soon.